and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hey, Lauren. How's your little ditto boy? My little ditto boy is so precious. <laughs> he is the cutest. He's up on our book- bookshelf. And when I watch TV with Steve, I, you know, my gaze sometimes rests on him. And I just think, what a, what a nice, what a nice job he's doing. He's doing his best. And I love his little smile. Yeah. If you didn't listen to last week's Pokemon episode, then maybe you don't know what's going on. But um, we, you know, Lauren started the episode as a self-proclaimed, quote, Pokemon idiot. Yes. And she ended with a favorite Pokemon. And we ended up getting her a little stuffed Pokemon. And yes. uh, now he's her favorite. He is my favorite. He's very cute and very purple. I was, uh, Steve and I were watching like some Pokemon like thing on YouTube the other day. And I was like, it's not that I'm, it's not that I just didn't play Pokemon. It's that I, and I don't know how this happened because I'm, you know, you and I are like the same way, same age and Steve and I are the same mm-hmm. age and all this stuff. It compl- like, I didn't know anybody just that missed played Pokemon. It. I missed yeah. it completely. It didn't it did come not to Gasport, New York. <laughs> it didn't come to Kenmore, New York. It didn't come, it didn't come to Buffalo. At least like my little, my little, you know, universe. No one in Buffalo played No Pokemon. one in Buffalo. No. I, I think that's fact. I, it's I'm gonna say it's fact because I didn't I didn't even know what the hell it was until like probably college like I just it just didn't it didn't come across from wherever I was so Ugh. something I missed out on that and Harry Potter just missed out on just, two whoosh. huge cultural tuss, touchstones yeah yep. that's okay uh, so now hopefully we are able to answer some uh, minor trivia questions about about Pokemon Which is what, you know, what we're here for. That's what we're here for. Uh, Another thing we're here for is to teach you all about important people that you may be unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is a person that was super important. And it was just like, we were very little when she was, when she was getting famous, I guess, for for what she was up to. So we were very little, like, you know. Single digits ages at this point. Sure. So okay. she was not in our consciousness at all. Um, okay. Good so to know. some people who might be older, some Gen Xers and Boomers that listen to this pod might be super familiar with her and like, oh yeah, we know all about this already. But for those of us millennials and younger, um, I'm here to introduce you to Chief Wilma Mankiller. What? First of all, uh, what an name. incredibly badass name yes that is a righteously metal name i love it so much (laughs) and i'll tell you all about the origins of it too so um right off the bat i found a lot of really great information on the cherokee nations website and Mm. also a page called the life of woman man killer first woman to serve as principal chief of the cherokee nation on the national trust for historic preservation on savingplaces.org so Mm. you know sorry i'm kind of i'm kind of uh giving you a peek behind the curtain at this point but that's fine. Um, to start, I'm going to give you a brief summary about the Cherokee Nation because we can't talk about woman man killer without talking about the Cherokee Nation. So yeah, yeah. According to tribal history, Cherokee people have existed since time began, and their oral history mm-hmm. extends back thousands of years. And it's recorded that their first European contact came in 1540 with Hernando de Soto's exploration of the southeastern portion of North America. So mm-hmm. uh, before the 18th century, the Cherokee people were concentrated in towns along river valleys of what is now southwest. North Carolina, southeastern Tennessee, um, edges of western South Carolina, northeastern Georgia, and also northeastern Alabama. 
Trade and intermarriage with European immigrants followed, notably with English, Scots, and Irish settlers who came to America. And treaties were made between the British and the Cherokee Nation as early as 1725, with the Cherokee Nation being recognized as inherently sovereign through those agreements. Mm. Uh, Cherokees then took up arms in various sides of conflict between European factions in hopes of kind of staving off further confiscation of their land and rights. Mm-hmm. Um, another quick sidebar. So uh, definition first. In linguistics, a syllabary is a set of written symbols that represent the syllables, stress, and timing which make up words. Um, okay. You may have a little inkling from American history about um, the Native American Sequoia. Um, S-E-Q-U-O-Y-A. He completed his independent creation of a Cherokee syllabary in 1821, making reading and writing in Cherokee finally possible. And his achievement was one of the few times in recorded history that a member of a pre-literate people created an original effective writing system. So the Cherokee mm. syllabary, their um, written language is only about um, 200 years old at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. So Sequoia decided to develop a symbol for each syllable in the language, creating a system mm. of what would become 85 characters, some of which were Latin letters he obtained from a spelling book. So if you do look at the written Cherokee language, some of the symbols kind of resemble uh, like Latin, Greek, Cyrillic, and actually old Slavonic letters, um, but they're not used to represent the same sounds. They just kind of have that appearance for each of the each of the syllables so it's really it's really interesting when you when you look at a piece of cherokee writing oh wow and then just four years later in 1825 the cherokee nation officially adopted that writing system so uh by the time gold was actually discovered in the Cherokee Nation in 1828, the people there had a written language. They had a newspaper that had been published in both Cherokee and English, and they also had a constitutional government. In 1835, a number of treaties with the U.S. had ceded away all but a small area of Cherokee Nation's once vast lands. In undermounting mm-hmm. pressure to give up what land remained, a small group of Cherokee leaders signed the Treaty of New Echota that year, agreeing to relocate the entire Cherokee Nation to West Western lands. Uh, despite many efforts to defeat that treaty, measures to remove Cherokees from their homes and farms got underway in 1838. So Cherokees, um, anybody that had married into into the tribes, intermarried whites, and even enslaved people uh, working who were working on the plantations of Cherokees were rounded up and placed into more than a dozen stockades to await their departure westward. And it's estimated that 16,000 Cherokees eventually were forced to undertake the six to seven month journey to Indian territory in the land beyond Arkansas. Between the stockades, starvation and sickness and the harsh conditions, about 4,000 Cherokees perished, never reaching their new homes. Oh my God. Uh, They did rebuild their lives in the Indian Territory, though, along with other tribes who'd been similarly driven away from the southeast. So although the Cherokee Nation was not technically part of the U.S., it was forced to take sides during the U.S. Civil War. About two thirds of the Cherokee men fought on the side of the Union, but another third was actively part of the Confederate effort. Uh, The (sighs) Cherokee Nation barely had time to rebuild after the war before they had to deal with allotment. So Cherokees Mm. had previously owned their land collectively, and the concept of individual landowners was completely a completely foreign concept yeah yeah. and by the late 1800s sentiment in the u.s had turned toward moving indians to reservations opening their lands for occupation and westward expansion Mm -hmm. and the cherokee nation had been promised by treaty that they wouldn't be bothered in their new home and wouldn't ever be removed again but 
Mm. Instead, of course, here we go. Uh, The U.S. chose to create a new state and allot tribes land out to individual owners. So the Dawes Act of 1887 provided for the breakup of commonly held tribal land into individual household allotments. So now Native Americans were registered on the Dawes rolls and they were allotted land from the common reserve. The U.S. government counted the remainder of tribal land as surplus and sold it to (laughs) non-Cherokee individuals. Cool, 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 cool. Yep. So Oklahoma there became a state in 1907. So now Cherokees were suddenly landowners and state citizens. So much of the Cherokee Nation's infrastructure was dissolved, including schools, courts, and most of its government. Yeah. Uh, Not great. No, not and this great, is everybody. Like you know, this is something that we're we talk about as institutions. That I'm sure, like this is something that that you've had conversations with mm-hmm. in your museum as well. This idea of like this institution is on stolen land, mm-hmm. and this is something that a lot of American institutions are are kind of reckoning with right now. It's like how do we acknowledge? Absolutely. How do we make land acknowledgments and do that? That's not just like a paragraph that's on a piece of you know label copy that no one is going to read yeah that no one's going to read and it's not going to impact any of the decisions made within the institution so yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's an ongoing scar absolutely Mm -hmm. so yeah we just need to get that get that background before Mm -hmm. we get into absolutely our girl wilma pearl man killer she was born on november 18th 1945 in taliqua oklahoma to charlie and clara irene man killer she was the sixth of 11 children Her father was a full-blooded Cherokee and her mother descended from Scots-Irish and English immigrants who'd first settled in Virginia and North Carolina in the 1700s. The family name Mankiller refers to a traditional Cherokee rank that's similar to a captain or a major. So it's not necessarily like she got this name because... She killed a bunch, a bunch of, of dudes. <laughs> but I mean, one that that would be I would respect that, too. You know, <laughs> yeah. Throughout her lifetime, like she kept a real sense of humor about her last name. Yeah. Too, yeah as, as you'll see later on. So um, Wilma's great grandfather had survived the deadly forced march of Native Americans westward that we call the Trail mm-hmm. of Tears. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, that was part of a series of forced relocations of about 100,000 Native Americans between oh, 1830 and 1850 by the U.S. government, also known as Indian Removal. Uh, members of the Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, um, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations were forcibly removed from their ancestral homelands in the southeastern U.S. to areas west of the Mississippi River that had been designated Indian Territory. And as I mentioned earlier, thousands died before reaching their destinations or shortly thereafter from disease. Cool. Uh, so Wilma, she grew up on tribal lands at Mankiller Flats in Taliqua, Oklahoma, in a home without electricity, indoor plumbing, or a telephone anything basically her family lived in extreme poverty and to sustain themselves the family hunted and fished they kept a vegetable garden Uh, they Mm. also grew peanuts and strawberries to sell to actually like make some money Mm -hmm. but Wilma's family moved to San Francisco California in the mid-1950s as part of a relocation policy to reclaim federally subsidized reservations in exchange for jobs in big cities so the Mankiller family sold all their belongings, took a train from Stillwell, Oklahoma to San Francisco. They had been promised an apartment in the city, but when they arrived, there were no apartments available. Oh my gosh. So they basically... Typical San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. You know? The housing in the 1950s, not much better than today. Yeah. Um, yeah. They ended up being housed instead in kind of like a squalid hotel in the Tenderloin District Jeez. for several weeks. Like not where you want to have oh your 11 children. 
jobs were sporadic. The family continued to struggle with finances, homesickness, and also discrimination. So basically, since the family was there and they didn't have any other Native Americans around them to kind of be a community for them, mm-hmm. they essentially were like, okay, well, we're just going to shut that part of our identity off for now. Oh, uh, yeah. So that to survive. To survive, yeah, basically. Essentially. Yeah. So, I mean... Mankiller and her siblings, they were enrolled in school, but it was difficult because the other students like made fun of her name and teased her about her clothes and the way that she talked. So she didn't really enjoy school. Um, She struggled with math and science, but she did. She did eventually graduate from high school in June 1963. And as soon as she finished school, Mankiller found a clerical job in a finance company and moved in with her older sister. And that summer at a Latin dance, she met Hector Hugo Alea de Bardi, an Ecuadorian college student from a well-to-do family. And the two began dating. So Mankiller found him sophisticated. And despite her parents' uh, discomfort with the union, uh, the two married in Reno, Nevada in November 1963. So she was only 17 when they got married. Oh, wow. Um, They moved into an apartment in the Mission District. And 10 months later, their daughter Felicia was born. Uh, They moved to to a house in a nearby neighborhood and a couple years later they had their second daughter Gina and while Alea continued his schooling at San Francisco State University and he also worked for Pan American Airlines Mankiller was busy raising their daughters so her husband saw himself as the family's provider you know he was leaving his wife at home to bring up the children and take care of the household but she was restless and she Mm -hmm. returned to school actually enrolling in classes at Skyline Junior College and for the first time she actually enjoyed school Um, she took only courses which interested her which you know that makes a big deal yeah <laughs> and uh yeah. as a young woman Mankiller only gradually grew aware of her Cherokee history and oh. later coming of age in civil rights era San Francisco she became a committed activist Ooh, so good for her. Mankiller started visiting the Indian activists who for 19 months called attention to their plight by occupying the abandoned federal prison on Alcatraz Island in 1969. I had oh, no wow. idea about this event in history. So citing a treaty that gave Native Americans the right to occupy unused land in the U.S., the occupation grew to include thousands of Native American people. So basically, as you covered in your um, episode on prisons, U.S. government was like, okay, Alcatraz, we're shutting it down. And so it was basically an abandoned, you know, an abandoned piece of land. And they said, well, you know, you guys don't listen to your, you know, your treaties with us. We're going to listen to this thing so basically they congregated on Alcatraz Island and like had a sit-in there so the movement shined an international spotlight on the trail of broken treaties and the forcing of native people onto reservations that were a fraction of their original homelands and Mm. there's also some great information about this event on the Alcatraz Island pages of the National Park Service website so she was finally like around other people around who had this shared history, this culture, and mm-hmm. she realized that um, that it would be really important to get into Native American issues. So yeah. her time in Alcatraz ignited a flame that ended up guiding her life's work. And actually, the occupation yielded direct results in federal policies signed by Richard Nixon at that point. Mm. So Mankiller assisted and supported the early Black Panthers and their mission to feed elders and children in the area. She began taking college courses at night while working to empower the Native communities surrounding her in California and she served as director of Oakland's Native American Youth Center. She believed that restoring pride in Native heritage could reduce the downward spiral of Native youth growing up on the streets. 
Um, against her husband's wishes, she bought her own car and began to seek independence, taking her daughters to Native American events all along the West Coast. Uh, mm. She supported California's Pitt River Tribe in their legal battle against the Pacific Gas and Electric Company over the rights mm. to millions of acres of tribal land. And she learned practical applications of the exercise of tribal sovereignty and treaty rights while working mm. with them. As yeah. a social worker with the Urban Indian Resource Center, she worked on programs conducting research on child abuse and neglect, foster care, and adoption of Native children. Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that most Indigenous children were actually placed with families with no knowledge of Native traditions, Mankiller worked on legislation with other staff and attorneys to prevent children from being removed from their culture. And yeah. the law eventually passed as the Indian Child Welfare Act, which made it illegal to place Native children in non-Native families. So she is getting stuff she's getting stuff done. done and you know what she realizes she doesn't need no man right now uh -oh. so she filed for divorce for malaya in 1975 wow a year later mankiller and her daughters returned to oklahoma in her grandfather's land in mankiller flats uh, but in 1977 she was a single mother of two she was struggling mm. to find employment and adapt back into her community after a 20-year absence and after doing volunteer work for the Cherokee Nation Mankiller was hired in 1977 to work on a program for young Cherokees to study environmental science she mm. attended college and grad school while working in the tribal offices as an economic stimulus coordinator she worked on home health care um, Indian child welfare protocols language services senior citizens programs and a youth shelter like she is <sighs> She's getting so much done. Yeah. She's like a, you Got know, a finger a social, in every pie. The social worker, like queen, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1979, Mankiller okay. nearly lost her life in a serious car accident in which oh she was God. struck head on by an oncoming <gasps> car, oh. which was driven by one of her best friends named no! Sherry Morris. So it was just like this awful accident. So Mankiller oh suffered God. broken ribs, breaks in her left leg and ankle. Her face and her right leg were crushed. And her oh friend God. driving the other car actually just died in the crash. Oh yeah, it was odd. So initially doctors thought she would never regain the ability to walk. But after 17 operations and plastic surgery oh. to reconstruct her face, she was released from the hospital, able to walk with crutches. While still in recovery, Mankiller began to notice a loss of muscle coordination. Um, she uh -oh, was no. dropping things. She wasn't able to grip things. Her voice was got really tired after a few minutes of speaking. And doctors thought that the problems were related to the accident. But then mm. she was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis, which is a long-term neuromuscular disease that leads to varying degrees no. of skeletal muscle weakness. She underwent more surgeries and chemotherapy. Oh my God. And she went back to work in December 1980. Holy cow, this woman cannot be stopped. No, she cannot be. Exactly. So working as a grant writer, Mankiller's first community development program was for Bell, Oklahoma, which was a small Cherokee community of about 200 families that didn't have any running water. They had really mm -hmm. high unemployment um, and basically like a persistent sense of, un of disempowerment. And yeah. by requiring community members to donate their time and labor to lay 16 miles of pipe for a shared water system, build houses or work on building rehabilitation, um, the grant that she'd written involved the community in self-improvement. And the success mm -hmm. of the program led to its use as a model for other programs and other tribes and there's mm -hmm. actually a 2013 movie based on this called the Cherokee word for water oh cool so in the midst of this project for Bell Oklahoma in 1981 tribal chief Ross Swimmer promoted her as mm 
first director of a department that she devised, the Community Development Department of the Cherokee Nation. Over the next three years, Mankiller raised millions of dollars for similar community development programs. So her approach was basically one of self-help, which allowed citizens to identify their problems and gain control of the challenges they faced. So mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, sit back and say, oh, poor me, you know, the government did this to me 100 years ago. She's like, no, we need to actually do something about the problems that we're having. Like, we can, you know, work together and solve these problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So Chief Ross Swimmer asked her to be his running mate in his 1983 bid for another term as head of the Cherokee Nation. Though they both wanted the tribe to become more self-sufficient, Swimmer felt that the path was through developing tribal businesses like hotels and agricultural enterprises, while Mankiller wanted to focus on small rural communities, improving Mm -hmm. housing and health care. So their policy differences were not really a key problem in the election, but Mankiller's gender was. She Mm. was absolutely surprised by the sexism she faced, as in traditional Cherokee society, families and clans were actually organized matrilineally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So she received death threats. Her tires were slashed. Um, There was a billboard with her face on it that was burned. Um, Jesus. So Swimmer, you know, he wasn't scared off by this. He was like, no, she's great. We need to, you know, solve these problems together. So Mm -hmm. Swimmer ended up being reelected. And then Mankiller was named deputy chief of the Cherokee Nation, the first woman ever elected to that position. And as deputy chief, one of her main duties was to preside over the tribal council, which was the 15 member governing body for the Cherokee Nation. And though she assumed that the sexism of the campaign would end once the election was resolved, she quickly realized that she had little support in the council. Um, Some members Mm. viewed her as a political enemy, while others discounted her just because she was a woman. Jeez. It's awful. That's awful. In 1985, when Chief Ross Swimmer left office to lead the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, Mankiller assumed the principal chief's office. So now she made history as the first woman to serve as principal chief of the Cherokee people, which at that point was the second largest Indian nation in the United States. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately, the press coverage on Mankiller made her an international celebrity and improved the perception of Native Americans throughout the country. Mm. In a November 1985 interview with People Magazine, for example, Mankiller wanted to show that Native cultural traditions of cooperation and respect for the environment made them role models for the rest of society. She pointed out that Cherokee women had been valued members of their communities before mainstream society imposed patriarchy mm-hmm. upon the tribe. Minkler also used her access with the press to educate Cherokee voters on the goals of her administration and her desire to improve housing and health services. And um, in 1986, she actually married her friend Charlie Soap, who was a full-blood bilingual Cherokee who devoted his entire career to strengthening the many Cherokee communities. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was a really nice thing that happened to her then, too. Um, well, sounds like she found somebody who, who has this, who has the same like, like goals and and value systems that she and was not afraid had. to like be you know the husband of the first a very woman powerful chief. woman absolutely yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, you mentioned earlier that you know with her last name. You know, she must have been such a badass. So her humor and strength were actually captured really well by her responses to the inevitable questions about her name. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone said when asked politely, she'd explain that it was an honorific for one who protects the group. And when asked Mm -hmm. not so politely, she'd say, I earned it. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. That's very good. That's very good. 
So in July 1987, Wilma Pearl Mankiller became the first woman elected as chief of the Cherokee. Wow. Uh, she continued using the press surrounding her election to combat the negative stereotypes about Native people, stressing their cultural heritage and strengths. And despite opposition from the male-dominated nation leadership at the time, she was elected in her own campaign in 1987 and re-elected again in 1991 in a landslide's victory, collecting 83% of the vote. So she was a popular leader at that point. Like, she proved mm-hmm. herself. She focused on improving the nation's government and healthcare and education systems. I won't get into the nitty gritty of everything that she did for her people, but I definitely recommend, you know, checking out her biography or oh, watching yeah. a documentary about her impact on on her people. It's it's mm-hmm. incredible. Due to her failing health, though, she decided not to seek re-election in 1995. Uh, Mankiller was, mm. she was diagnosed oh, no. with colon cancer and lymphoma in 1996. Oh, my God. She also had received two kidney transplants, the first in 1990 and the second in 1998. So, Oh, my God. Her mind and her heart were <laughs> were so strong, but the rest of her was Was just was struggling. really yeah. having a hard time. Yeah. Jeez. So, for more than two decades, Mankiller led her people through difficult times. During her three terms, she tripled her tribe's enrollment. She doubled employment and built new housing, health centers, children's programs in Northeast Oklahoma. Under her leadership, infant mortality declined, educational achievement rose. Um, In 1990, she signed a historic self-determination agreement in which the Bureau of Indian Affairs surrendered direct control over millions of dollars in federal funding to the tribe. And after leaving office, she continued her activism on behalf of Native Americans and women. Uh, she also taught for a short time at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And wow. Mankiller shared her experiences as a pioneer in tribal government in her 1993 autobiography, Mankiller, A Chief and Her People. She also wrote and compiled Every Day is a Good Day, Reflections by Contemporary Indigenous Women in 2004. Oh, wow. And for her leadership and activism, Mankiller received numerous honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. Mm. Good for her. Okay. In oh. March 2010, her husband announced that Mankiller was terminally ill with pancreatic cancer. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, this, this is going to do it, guys. This, this is going to this is going to be what gets her. And yeah. Pancreatic cancer. Everybody, it's just donate awful. to donate to pancreatic cancer research. It's please taken so many people, wonderful people, so many yeah. wonderful people. So decades earlier, Wilma Mankiller's selection as a Ms. Magazine's Woman of the Year began a lifelong friendship with feminist icon Gloria Steinem. What? They were like <laughs> best friends. Okay. Oh my so God. For, um, you know, they, they were like just such good friends for like two decades. Like Gloria Steinem wrote the foreword to her 2004 book. Um, she was interviewed about her all the time. Like there's all these photos of them together. And for two weeks, Gloria Steinem kept a bedside vigil watching as oh pancreatic cancer slowly claimed the life of her friend and oh was God. by her side when Mama Mankiller died on April 6, 2010 at age 64 in Adair oh, County, Oklahoma. So young. Yeah, right? She She did so much stuff in like... 40 years like she got so much so much done made such an impact um so Gloria Steinem said of her friend quote ancient traditions call for setting signal fires to light the way home for a great one fires were lit in 23 countries after Wilma's death the millions she touched will continue her work but I will miss her every day of my life um Mankiller's papers are housed in the Western History Collection at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. There's also a really well-reviewed 2017 documentary called Mankiller by filmmaker Valerie Redhorse 
And Meg Teller stated in her autobiography, quote, if I am to be remembered, I want it to be because I am fortunate enough to have become my tribe's first female chief. But I also want to be remembered for emphasizing the fact that we have indigenous solutions to our problems. Amazing. And that's the story of Chief Woman Mankiller. That's amazing. I didn't know any of that. That's I didn't incredible. Know any of that. It's it was like a name that had like flitted through my head and mm-hmm. you know we have like learnedly questions come up so often and we've had a couple mm-hmm. that have asked us about Native American women and there's only so many names that like we as white people are familiar yeah, have with. heard of or know about. Yeah. yeah. So it's really important to like expand our knowledge base and yeah, learn about exactly. the the great impact of people like her and you know what like you could draw like a direct line from Wilma Mankiller to like the current secretary of the interior Deborah Helen <sighs> oh my gosh yeah yeah who is I think like though the person the the Native American who has been like who has ascended to like the highest mm-hmm. rank so far of any Native American in American government. Yes. And I think she's she's Laguna Pueblo, I believe. Mm-hmm. But she's done a lot for her community and the Native American communities in the Southwest and around the country. Um, but yeah, like women, like the matrilineal society of Native cultures provides this platform for women to gain power and has been since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that she was... She she saw so much, um, so much resistance right. against that. Yeah, which you know, that's the patriarchy for you. But you know, whatever. That was amazing. Thank yeah. you, Julia. She's, oh my god, that was so good. She's so great. So, uh, kind of pivoting. <laughs> quiz is called <laughs> "This Ain't It, Chief." This is a quiz about chiefs in pop culture. Ooh. Question one. We'll start off easy. Master Chief is the protagonist in what multimedia franchise, originally developed by the Radiant Bungie Inc. and now managed by 343 Industries? Question two. Deja vu. Once again, it's almost time for the big game. And just like in 2020, the Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl. What is the name of the team's official mascot? Question three. Chief Bromden, a very large and docile Native American patient at a psychiatric hospital, is the narrator for what 1962 novel about the antics of Randall Patrick McMurphy? Question four. Even those of us with harried schedules who aren't devoted Simpsons fans should get this one. Who is the head of the Springfield Police Department? Question five. Lynn Thigpen portrayed the chief of Acme Crime Net for five seasons on the 1990s children's geography game show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Name for me, in order, the three key items that gumshoes were required to find in each episode so that they could apprehend Carmen's vile henchmen. Question six. Which 1907 short story by O. Henry follows two men who kidnap and demand payment for a wealthy man's ginger-haired son? Ironically, the men are driven crazy by the boy's behavior and they end up paying the father to take his son back. Question 7. Chief Tui is the leader of the people on the oceanic island of Matanui, as well as the father of which animated film protagonist who debuted in 2016? Question 8. 
I'm going to speak some lyrics of a hit 2007 song, and I'd like for you to tell me the song title and the band who released this single. Ahem. Due to lack of interest, tomorrow is canceled. Let the clocks be reset and the pendulums held. Because there's nothing at all except the space in between. Finding out what you're called and repeating your name. Question nine. The character of Josiah Jed Bartlett, the beloved president and commander-in-chief from the television series The West Wing, was said to be a direct descendant of the stony Josiah Bartlett, a real-life signer of the Declaration of Independence on August 2nd, 1776. But this is not a West Wing question. Name me either which former colony the real Josiah Bartlett represented in the Second Continental Congress or how many future U.S. presidents signed the Declaration of Independence. And finally, question 10. Hit them with your purse. The Charlestown Chiefs are the minor league ice hockey team at the center of what cult classic 1977 sports movie that introduced us to the Hanson Brothers? I'll give you about a minute to think about it and then be back with your answers. Jageyu, Jageyu, Ani Chalagi. Jageyu, Jageyu, Ani Chalagi. Jageyu, gather together, we stand to honor. With roses and cedar And all the colors of sunrise and sunset A beloved woman who walked among us <laughs> I'm, uh, whew. Okay. I'm having a I'm having a hard time with these, but let's do this. Let's do this. Yeah, we'll do it. I was trying to get a get a mix of everything. Oh, you got a, a good bit mix, of everything, yeah. guys. So, question one: Master Chief is the protagonist in what multimedia franchise originally developed by the Radiant Bungie Inc. and now managed by Three Four Three Industries? Is this Halo? It is Halo. Okay. Whew. And Not the that, sixth main installment, Halo Infinite, is due for release in fall of 2021. So everybody be prepared for your boyfriends and husbands to be attached to their Xboxes <laughs> for several months. Uh, when I told Julia that Steve's just started wa- playing Halo, I she... I couldn't believe it. She she gripped her pearls with her hand so and went, hard. I Steve it? Big, 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 big. <laughs> They rolled everywhere. I was like, what's going on? And of course, you know, I don't know anything about video games. So Julia had to warn me about what <laughs> what Halo is. Ugh. She was like, he's not a first person shooter kind of guy. I was like, I know. <laughs> he likes puzzle games. Now I don't we, get it. Now now he's Master Chief. What can, I know. Now what he's Master Chief. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Question two. Deja vu. Once again, it's almost time for the big game. And just like in 2020, the Kansas City Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl. What is the name of the team's official mascot? I mean, I have I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I did watch their game against the Bills, but I don't know. Uh, is it like Tootie? I don't know. 
I would like you to describe for me. Describe Tootie for me, Lauren. I imagine Tootie is... Uh, <laughs> Tootie is... Now, I'm going to take it like it's good. They put a little spit on it. Yeah. Okay. He, Tootie is a, um, a, a uh, train engineer. He's the chief train engineer. <laughs> so, And he's called Tootie because he loves to toot, <laughs> toot the horn. <laughs> I mean, um, you know is, what? I'm going to write this down. Tootie. This is. Because I'm so sure I'm right. Because I'm so sure I'm right. This is so much better than the real answer. What's uh, the real answer? So the, <laughs> instead of Tootie, the train engineer, um, the the mascot for the Kansas City Chiefs is named KC Wolf. Oh, yeah. No, yes. mine's way better. Yeah, yours is way better. Uh, so first introduced in 1989 as the successor to um, their previous mascot, who was named Warpaint, who, which was a Yikes. horse ridden by a man wearing full Native American headdress. Um, Casey Wolf was named after the team's Wolf Pack, which was a group mm. of boisterous fans who sat in temporary bleachers at Municipal Stadium. The mascot, Casey Wolf, designed by none other than Ooh. Bonnie Erickson. The creator of Miss Piggy and Statler and Waldorf, who worked for Jim Henson and the Muppets and has mm-hmm. created a number of other professional sports mascots, including Yuppie yeah, and say, the Yuppie. Philly Fanatic mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of other ones. Oh, she didn't gosh. design um, Gritty, did she? No, she didn't. And Gritty, actually, Gritty. I saw her like the week after Gritty debuted and I was like, you got to tell me, Bonnie, what do you think of Gritty? And she was like, he's really fun. And you know what? I've I've accepted that. He's, yeah. I mean, he's a chaos Muppet for sure, but absolutely with the googly eyes i think gritty was not designed by anyone he emerged fully formed (laughs) (laughs) from the from the sewers of philadelphia yeah from the sewers of philadelphia and he came to save us all (laughs) (laughs) all right question three chief bromden a very large and docile native american patient at a psychiatric hospital is the narrator for what 1962 novel about the antics of randall patrick mcmurphy Oh, that's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Absolutely. Yeah. By Ken Kesey. Um, the novel is a direct product of Kesey's time working the graveyard shift as an orderly at a mental health facility in Menlo Park, California. And not only did he speak to the patients and witness the workings of the institution, he also voluntarily took psychoactive drugs, including mescaline <laughs> and LSD, as oh part God. of Project MK Ultra. <laughs> Damn. What? What? The 60s what? were wild. That's a wild time. I would not have survived it. Like, I would have been, I would have just been like, that's it. Just take me, zombies. I just, <laughs> I can't deal with this. All right, question four. Even those of us with harried schedules who aren't devoted Simpsons fans should get this one. Who is the head of the Springfield Police Department? Is this Chief Wiggum? You are correct. This yes. is Chief Clancy Wiggum. Um, and his surname, Wiggum, is the creator, Matt Groening's mother's maiden name. Really? Yes. Yikes. 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 <laughs> All right. Question five. Lynn Thigpen portrayed the chief of Acme Crime Net for five seasons on the 1990s children's geography game show, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? Name for me, in order, the three key items that the gumshoes were required to find in each episode so that they could apprehend Carmen's vile henchmen. I have not watched an episode of Carmen San Diego since easily 1993. Okay. So it's been a minute. Um, mm-hmm. I don't... I want to say it's like, and this this is probably totally wrong. I want to say it's like, uh, you know, the capital, a landmark, uh, and like, I don't know, like a, 
I don't know. It's like, it's like non, I want to say it's like big things that you can't actually grab. It's just like concepts. <laughs> yes. You, yeah. Yes. You're right. It's concepts. Uh, the answer is the loot, the okay. warrant, and the croak. Oh, oh right. And right, so right, Rockapella right. would like sing that. Like the loot, the warrant, the croak. <laughs> Rockapella, underrated band. Honestly, underrated. And I don't even like acapella, but. One of the best, one mm. of the best show theme songs to ever oh, happen was forever ever. in the world of Carmen San Diego. Absolutely. Um, so the show itself was actually created partially in response to the results of a National Geographic survey that indicated Americans had alarmingly little knowledge of geography, mm-hmm. with about True. one in four at the time being unable to locate the Soviet Union or the Pacific Ocean. Oh, no. No. That's, that's embarrassing. Yeah. So I... I'd like to think that a group of a group of us millennials kind of learned our geography stuff from from at least if not the video game we're in the Rose Carmen San Diego but the game Definitely show. The TV show. I love yeah. that show so much. Oh my god, and my days to tape uh, it. You didn't want to get the map of Africa. That's all. No. That's all you knew. Mm-hmm. The, the dreaded map of Africa. Yeah, so many countries. So many countries that nobody taught us over here. Yeah, yeah. Surprise. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Question six. Which 1907 short story by O. Henry follows two men who kidnap and demand payment for a wealthy man's ginger-haired son? Ironically, the men are driven crazy by the boy's behavior and they end up paying the father to take his son back. This is going to make me so mad because this has been buried in the back of my mind for for decades. Okay. For decades. And it's like, it's like the... The ransom of chief something or the kidnapping of chief something. I've been writing down like synonyms for the abduction, like trying to <laughs> think If I of, tell you that the boy had ginger hair, does that help? Uh, chief. Oh, that's tickling something. Chief red. Put the words in the right order now. The ransom of chief red close the chief uh, the redhead the ransom of chief red oh man you have the I, words you have the words you just have to put them in the right order uh, and I, th- I know to you that means you already have the correct answer but give it give it a little more little, give, give it a little, little more for everybody okay first first i'm just gonna put a check mark to to prove that, that i got it right because i have i said all the words you said all the words <laughs> um the ransom of red chief the yes. ransom of red chief Yes. 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 Great. Okay. So for those of you who don't know the story, uh, mm-hmm. basically calling himself Red Chief, the boy proceeds to drive his captors mad with his constant chatter, pranks, and demands to play with him. Um, so the kidnappers had originally demanded $2,000 from their fa- from the boy's father, but they lowered it to get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the father, who realizes how insufferable his son is probably being, rejects their demand and offers to take the boy back off their hands only if they pay him $250. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's very good. It's, it's a it's surprisingly funny. Yeah, yeah. it's a good oh one. Henry man. Oh yeah, underrated. Ugh, not just a candy bar. <laughs> <laughs> Question seven: Chief Tui is the leader of the people on the oceanic island of Matanui, as well as the father of which animated film protagonist who debuted in 2016. Oh, is that Moana? It is Moana. Oh, yay. Um, So the plot of that film is original uh, with inspiration from Polynesian mythology, such as the character of Maui, who is a demigod voiced by none other than Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Best. Love him. It's a very very good movie. I like it. I have yet to see it, but I do need to just sit down and watch it. some catchy songs for sure. 
All right. Speaking of songs, question eight. I'm going to speak some lyrics of a hit 2007 song, and I'd like for you to tell me the song title and the band who released the single. Due to lack of interest, tomorrow is canceled. Let the clocks be reset and the pendulums held. Because there's nothing at all except the space in between. Finding out what you're called and repeating your name. I have no idea. I'm assuming the word chief is in there somewhere. Or maybe chief. it's maybe it's in the band's name. Uh, it's okay. I'm gonna then I'm gonna split the diff. It's called Chief by the band Chief. Ooh, <laughs> get you. Uh, this is Ruby, 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 Ruby. Ah, you know this song. You absolutely know this song. The song's called Ruby by the Kaiser Chiefs. You know oh, this. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding oh, yeah, out I what you're have called it. and repeating your name. Ruby, 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 Ruby. Ah. Anyway, it's a great, it's a great song. It was All on right. a lot of indie movie soundtracks. Um, so the band is called the Kaiser Chiefs. They're an English indie rock band. They have a bunch of other really fun songs. Um, and they actually took their band name from the South African football club, the Kaiser Chiefs, spelled K A. I Z E R. Um, mm. but the but the band is K A I S E R. Just that way. Yeah. All right, question nine. The character of Josiah Jed Bartlett, the beloved president and commander in chief from the television series The West Wing, was said to be a direct descendant of the Stony Josiah Bartlett, a real life signer of the Declaration of Independence from August second, seventeen seventy six. But this is not a West Wing question. Name me either which former colony the real Josiah Bartlett represented in the Second Continental Congress. Or how many future U.S. presidents signed the Declaration of Independence? Uh, I'm going to go with future U.S. presidents that signed the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. um, Because I feel like I have a better shot at guessing that. I'm going to say four. The answer is two. Oh, dang. Just Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Uh, Um, And uh, Josiah Bartley represented New Hampshire New Hampshire everybody Um, There were 56 delegates who signed the declaration Most famously You all know John Hancock Who was Mm -hmm. president of Congress But represented Massachusetts Bay Um, It's another document that's you know like super important And um, I've Mm. seen a lot of trivia come up about like Who signed it first Who signed it last Who was the oldest person to sign it Who was the youngest Mm -hmm. person to sign it all that kind of stuff. So it's just fun to know. So yeah, Thomas yeah. Jefferson and John Adams were actually the only two presidents of the United States, future presidents of the United States to sign it. George Washington famously did not sign it. I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally, question 10. Hit them with your purse. The Charlestown Chiefs are the minor league ice hockey team at the center of what cult classic 1977 sports movie that introduced us to the Hanson brothers? Um, I thought you said 1997, and so I was going to say Mighty Ducks, but that's not true. Um, so this is, is this Slapshot? It is Slapshot. Nice. Yes. Um, the great Paul Newman was player coach mm. Reggie Dunlop, and Paul Newman often stated that the most fun he ever had making a movie was on Slapshot. And during oh. the last decades of his life, he repeatedly called Reg Dunlop one of his favorite movie roles. Uh, the film... Uh, was filmed the film was filmed the movie was filmed in Johnstown Pennsylvania again feel free mm-hmm. to learn more about Johnstown in episode 101 open the floodgates with Katie Sikowski it's also filmed in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania and also in central New York State in Clinton Utica and the Onondaga County War Memorial Auditorium in the famous city of Syracuse wow they really they really hit on all of the uh 
all the, the rust belt all the rust belt uh, <laughs> arenas yep all yep. the best and most beautiful cities <laughs> <laughs> ah come to clinton yeah clinton new york mm, utica once arson capital of the world uh, it's true bring your own extinguisher yeah please do we so don't have yes. any more so yes everybody this was that was uh, great that was the quiz and i only got three wrong great which is pretty good considering i was not expecting to get as many as i did right so <laughs> congrats of bread chief Gotta get that back in there yep. that was great thanks jewel yeah um remember everybody we are going to be doing another uh um we're going to be doing another trivia night sign up for it uh all of our info will be on our social meds it will be thursday march 18th at uh 7 p.m i think but Pink. you know double check on that <laughs> we'll be at the memorial art gallery this time yes it will be at my place of work and don't be afraid it will not be art history questions it will be trivia questions based on pieces in our collection so you'll get inspired a little taste of our, by the art inspired by the art yes so you get a little taste of our artwork some of our best pieces some of our, our most fun and our our personal favorite pieces and then you'll get some trivia questions and you get to win prizes i mean what's better than that and you get to see both of us yes if you missed us last time, or if technical difficulties prevented you from enjoying yourself to the fullest, don't worry. <laughs> this time, everybody will have it all figured out. Yeah. Hopefully this time, it will not look like we died at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I actually keep forgetting about that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it was so traumatic that we just, <laughs> we just put it out of our minds. So, um... Yes, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, keep an eye out for the link for that, and uh, we will catch you next time. Adios. Bye. Bye.